0: When I posted a photo of this week's book to my Instagram story a few weeks ago, I got so, so many excited messages from people who were thrilled to be reminded of it. This novel for young readers seems to hold a special place in lots of hearts, and I have a pretty good feeling that this episode of the SSR Podcast will too. On episode 183, my guest and I revisit In the Year of the Boar and Jackie Robinson, which was written by Betty Ball Lord in 1984. The book follows the journey of a young Chinese girl named Shirley Temple Wong who moves to the U.S. with her family in the year 1947. Shirley is a super energetic kid and has high hopes for her adventure, but as you can imagine, there are a lot of challenges ahead of her. In the Year of the Boar and Jackie Robinson takes readers through the highs and lows of Shirley's immigration experience. Shirley gets lost trying to buy cigarettes for her father, makes new friends, deals with a difficult transition to an English-speaking school, and discovers a passion for baseball and Jackie Robinson, the first Black band to play in the major leagues. Ultimately, our heroine gains confidence in her Chinese-American identity and embraces the fact that she can be both. Identity is a big topic in the episode you're about to hear. My guests and I also talk about the lack of Asian-American representation in literature, our fascination with Shirley's parents, the many pressures placed on marginalized communities, the lack of support available for immigrants, depictions of race, and our complicated feelings about the portrayal of the American dream in this book and in our own childhoods. It's a thoughtful, important conversation, and I am thankful to my guests for having it with me. My guest today is Tracy Chee. Tracy is a best-selling and award-winning author of books for young people, including the Instant New York Times bestseller and Kirkus Prize finalist, The Reader, and Prince Honor Book Walter Award Honoree and National Book Award finalist, We Are Not Free. Her new book, A Thousand Steps Into Night, is a Japanese-influenced young adult's fantasy. When she isn't writing, Tracy enjoys hiking, egg painting, bonsai gardening, and hosting game nights for family and friends. She lives in California with her fast dog. Find her online at tracychi.com, at tracychi on Twitter, and at tracychi author on Instagram and Facebook. You may have already found SSR on social media, but in case you haven't, check us out at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. If you are looking for even more free bookish community, join the SSR Book Club. In March, the SSRBC is reading Maud Hart Lovelace's Betsy Tacy. You won't pay a penny and you will meet so many amazing bookworms too. Learn more and join at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. SSR is an independent podcast and a one-woman show, which means I handle every step of making and producing it on my own without the financial backing of a larger organization. That's why Patreon has been such a gift. Patrons can pay as little as $1 per month to help keep the show going strong, and at each tier of support, you get exclusive rewards. Access to the SSR Discord channel, SSR merch, bonus episodes, newsletters, and more are all up for grabs. Plus, you can get an invite to the SWR Shit We Read book club. This week, we kick off our month-long discussion about Sex Cult None by Faith Jones, and starting in April, SWR will meet every single month. We would love to have you along for the ride. Get involved at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, or by clicking support at the top of the page on www.ssrpodcast.com. You can also show your support for the podcast by posting a rating or review on your podcast player or by sharing this episode on social media. Take a screenshot wherever you're listening and post it to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag me at ssrpod so I can see and repost it. If you're anything like me, your TBR is truly never-ending and listening to books is a great way to try to keep up with it. I really like listening to memoirs and other nonfiction on audio, and my go-to audiobook platform is Libro.fm. When you shop with Libro.fm instead of a larger company, you're supporting independent bookstores, which I think always feels great. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O ofm and use code SSR Podcast when prompted on the site to get a two month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional "WTF" to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hoffkassig, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR podcast. Hi, Tracy. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Ali, Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you today. So today we are talking about a book called In the Year of the Bora and Jackie Robinson. And I have to tell you that ever since I started posting about this book, kind of giving my listeners little previews to what I'm reading on Instagram, I have lost count of the number of times people have messaged me how excited they are to hear this conversation and how much seeing even just like the cover of this book – brought back memories for them of their childhood reading. So Tracy, I'd love to hear from you about any history that you have with this book and why you wanted to read it for today's conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that we are reading this book together. It's one of the ones that I read when I was kind of in that first second grade age range. And I, 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 for some reason, read this one and then also Yang the Youngest and his terrible ear, which were both kind of about Chinese Americans and baseball. <laughs> and so like I have very, very fond memories of reading this one. I actually dug out the old, this exact same old copy that I was reading like 20, 30 years ago. So
0: that's so cool. I love that you have that copy.
1: Yeah, I kept I, I have this box of books in the garage that I just couldn't let go of.
0: Yeah, of course. So do you remember any of like your Experiences with the book. Was there anything that stuck out to you as a kid?
1: Yeah. For a brief time it got me very interested in baseball.
0: Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it did not
1: did not last beyond kind of reading in the year of the born Jackie Robinson and Yang and the Youngest in his terrible ear. But for a brief time, I was like, oh baseball, American pastime, so wonderful. I didn't play it, didn't watch it. I just <laughs> I just had this like very romantic image of it. And then the other thing that I didn't realize until probably a couple years ago. So decades after reading these books was that reading about Chinese Americans so young really kind of cemented my own identity as a Chinese American. And I hope we get to talk about that because as I was reading it again, I was like, oh, this is the moment. This is the moment where I realized I could be both and I didn't have to choose Chinese or American or Japanese or American. We will definitely
0: talk about that because I can't wait to hear more. Um, So thank you for sharing that little preview. I too read this book when I was a kid. It's interesting because most of the people who have DM'd me about this book have said that they remember having it read to them by a teacher. And so as I was reading it, I was trying to remember if I'd read it myself, or if it had been read aloud to me in school, I do feel like this was a book that was part of the curriculum in my school. And as I was reading it, like I did have these memories coming back of hearing it. And I don't know if it's just because the writing is so like melodic and rhythmic in its own way. Or maybe I just like made up these memories because other people (laughs) are projecting theirs onto me. But I do kind of feel like maybe parts of this Were read to me, Um, but I definitely remember reading it. And it's something that I've been wanting to read for the podcast for a long time because when I look back at the books that were available to me when I was a kid in the 90s, there were not that many books in which Asian American children were represented. And I don't think that I was handed that many books that had been written by Asian or Asian American authors. And obviously, that's an important conversation that we're having. And I wish that we'd had it earlier. But I'm so glad that we're finally having the chance to talk about this book, because it looms large for me in my memory period. And it definitely looms large as a book that was representative of a community that I definitely was underexposed to as a kid.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, I had the huge gift of having relatives who would give me books and so that's how I got in the year that born Jackie Robinson that's how I got Yang the youngest in this terrible year that's how I got the best bad thing which is by a Japanese author named Yoshiko Uchida and so I had like the great fortune of of books being handed to me, books that showed me kids who looked like me. And so I don't know that I felt that kind of dearth of representation the way some other people did because I was just, I was so lucky. Oh,
0: well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm really glad to hear that. I also grew up with relatives that were big on buying me books and that's such a gift and I think probably speaks to why I have become such a book lover, or at least has contributed to it. So a couple of quick facts. This book was published in 1984. It was written by Betty Bao Lord, and it is largely biographical. Um, she has spoken about how it represents a lot of her own experiences immigrating to America when she was a child. And in this book, we meet Bandit at first, who chooses the name Shirley Temple Wong when she is asked what she wants to name herself before moving to America. The year is 1946. It's right after World War II. And she is told by her grandfather that she has been kind of called to the to the US. Her dad has been there as an engineer for a few years. And at first, she kind of thinks it's like a punishment that she's being sent away. She's like a little bit rambunctious. And she seems to cause a lot of trouble in this big family early on in the book when they're living in chunking. But he's like, No, you're going with your mom and you're going to reunite with your dad. And I just love that opening scene. What did you think?
1: I love it too. I feel like that that first chapter really gives us a sense of like who Shirley Temple Wong is. She's smart. She's observant. She's curious. She's bold and she leaps to conclusions all the time that get her into so much trouble and and having her think oh no this horrible thing is happening let me go get like my youngest cousin precious coins to like help me engender sympathy so that I won't be sent away like it's so it's so great to see her kind of spark you know I feel like she's such a sparky character and it's a great contrast to to have that as like her Characterization right off the bat, and then to see that characterization change a little bit as she comes to America. Yeah, I agree. I
0: had this image of her like holding this baby in front of her face, being like, "No, look at the baby. Don't look at me. Like, don't don't send me away. I don't want to be in trouble." It just felt very true to the way that kids actually uh, respond to things mm-hmm. and move through the world. I was fascinated by just some of the markers of like the time period in this book that come next. So. Shirley Temple Wong and her mom aren't getting on a plane to go to the U.S. They get on a boat. And I guess what really struck me was this moment when they're getting, I think it was right after they got off the boat and they were trying to, like, figure out the best way to reach the dad. And Shirley's mom panics because she's like, oh, my gosh, what if he never got any of the letters that I sent? What if I got the address wrong sending the letters? And I had so much empathy for her because it's that feeling of like leaving the house and being like, did I blow out all the candles? Did I turn the curling iron off? It's that feeling of like when you send your dad a birthday card and you're like, oh, I really hope I got the address right. But the stakes are so high because this is a woman who has just arrived in a country where she is not familiar with the language. She's not familiar with the geography. And she's having this moment of like, I really hope my husband knows that we're coming And I just I felt for her so much in that moment. And it was such a reminder of like, the conveniences that we have now. And yeah, I complain about a lot of stuff that feels inconvenient in 2022. But the safety that we have in the way that we communicate with each other and in the way that we travel is just so different.
1: Yeah, like she couldn't just kind of arrive, not see him and then like pick up her cell phone. And call him or, like, pick up her cell phone and, like, Google map it <laughs> to, to where she needed to go, right? There was this huge gap of time where they were just weren't in contact. And I think, too, about kind of that two-week journey across the Pacific Ocean in a ship. And, like, that's a journey that my chinese grandparents made when they were coming here at a similar time actually Mm -hmm. as as shirley temple wong and like you just don't know there's no way of knowing what you're gonna get when you arrive and i love how that kind of builds up for shirley temple wong's character where she's like oh i'm so excited it's gonna be so wonderful and then again that contrast when she does finally arrive and things are so different and it finally begins to hit her Yeah, I'm curious, did your grandparents ever tell you any stories about that journey? Like, does any of this resonate with any of their experiences? Both my grandparents on my Chinese side passed away before I could ask them about this. But I know that my step-grandmother on my Japanese side made this journey after World War II when they were sent back to Japan out of the Japanese-American incarceration camps. And what she remembers from that trip is being horribly seasick the whole time.
0: Just like Shirley's mom in the book.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think
0: that that sounds like it could be a very real thing. Um, But yeah, I love that Shirley is like not afraid. Like she's sort of surprised by how she's not scared and she's sad to leave her family. But I love that the author chose to make her this spunky character because it does set her up to kind of land in this new country. And as you mentioned, be surprised because she enters this experience with all the confidence in the world.
1: Yes, I, I keep thinking about that first scene where they've just arrived. She and her mother have just arrived. They've just gotten to see this very tiny apartment compared to like this huge pavilion that she used to live in back in China. And her dad needs cigarettes and she's like, oh, I'll go do it. I know where it is. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and then she just kind of ventures out, no fear whatsoever. I, I mean, I love that about her. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't
0: even seem to need to like rest. Most people after that kind of a journey are like, I need to lay down. I need to sleep. She's like, no, I'm good. I'm going to go buy you some cigarettes. And I have to tell you, Tracy, that of the DMs that I got about this book, and there were many, at least 75% of them mentioned this scene with Shirley getting the cigarettes. It really sticks out to people. And I think it's because of Shirley's little refrain that she has in her head that's like left right lucky strike yeah so many people told me that that came flooding back to them when they saw the cover of this book and it's the way that Shirley is trying to to sort of guide herself through this journey from the new apartment to the convenience store to the corner store to get her dad's cigarettes I do love that her dad was like sure I guess you can go like if it's that important to you to buy me my cigarettes and also just such a sign of a different time like Mm -hmm cigarettes. I mean, what is that anymore? Like that's just not something that we would see in a kid's book period, let alone a child going to buy them for her dad. Yeah. (laughs) So funny.
1: I love that scene too because I feel like it shows so much about her dad when she goes to get the cigarettes or not at the first store. She goes to the second store, tries to get back, gets horribly lost and just kind of sinks down and i love that contrast again between kind of how bold and and sparky she is before and she just you just kind of see her like sitting this poor little chinese kid sitting on this stoop and how he comes and he doesn't say anything right he doesn't scold her he he doesn't yell at her in any way he just like very gently and very kindly takes her back to their apartment and i just i love that about her father and about the book in in general like it felt To me, as a grown-up reading it, like this was a fairly gentle introduction for her, right? She lives in a fairly gentle world where, yes, there's some bullying. Yes, there's some racism. But on the whole, she's really – she's so charismatic that she's really loved and embraced by so many people.
0: Charismatic is a really good word for her. And as somebody who has a terrible, like truly terrible sense of direction – I can't tell you how much I I felt for her when she got turned around trying to walk back to the apartment. Like that's totally something that would happen to me. I would just march my way out to my destination, need to go to another store because the first store didn't have what I needed, and then I wouldn't be able to find my way back. I truly rely like so much on Google Maps. I don't know what I would do without it.
1: I feel that way in cities. I mean, especially in New York. Like if I can see a horizon. I'm okay, but like being surrounded by all of these tall buildings, I get horribly, horribly lost. Yeah.
0: Well, we were just talking a little bit about Shirley's dad, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about Shirley's parents, because I think that they're great characters, and I, I did kind of fall head over heels for her dad in that moment when, as you mentioned, he doesn't scold her for getting lost. He kind of continues to set her up for success. He welcomes his wife and his daughter. He's, like, so excited that they're there. He doesn't really seem to feel at all embarrassed that they're going to be living in these conditions that are so much different than what they're used to. He just has, like, such a great attitude about his new life in the U.S.
1: What did you think about her parents? I... Loved them. As I was reading it this time, I came across that illustration where they just step off the train platform and they see each other again for like the very first time in uh, years. And I just, I, I have, I had such a visceral reaction to that because I remember that illustration and like the love and like calm in her mom's face. I just, I felt like that was such a beautiful example of the affection that they have for each other, and that carries through kind of the whole. Book, and then I wonder, like, as the book goes on, I think about how they they do kind of recede as as Shirley kind of gains confidence in herself as a Chinese American. They kind of fade into the background a bit, and I and was like, oh, I wanted to see more of them as a grown up, but as a kid, I don't remember having that reaction. So, yeah, (laughs) it's so funny. Priorities,
0: (laughs) yeah, for sure. It's so funny whenever I talk to people on the show about parent characters in these books. It's fascinating to me how interested I am in parents in these books, because a lot of them are around my age. I mean, I'm in my early 30s. And so Shirley's mom is probably about my age. If it's 1946, I would imagine that she got married younger and maybe started having her family younger. And so she might be exactly my age or even younger than I am. And so I'm just like, so curious about what her life is like and how she feels. And I'm like, can you just like take me inside her brain for a minute? Whereas when you're a
1: kid, you're like, oh, get these grownups out of here. I know, exactly. I feel like I was really struck this time when her mom first sees the apartment Mm. and it's so small and she's expected to do the cooking for the first time in her life and she's expected to do the cleaning for the first time in her life. And you you can tell that she's really uncomfortable with it but she doesn't say anything. And I loved being able to pick up on that now. I don't remember if I was able to pick up on that as a kid, but I was definitely like, oh, he's expecting a lot of her in this situation. Uh, I don't know if I would take that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I also, and this is just occurring to me now, but I also think this is an interesting narrative because, so when I was growing up, I was not around many people that had immigrated to the U.S. in decades before. Like my great-great-grandparents, and I think maybe one or two great-grandparents immigrated here, but my grandparents were all born in the U.S., and so I didn't grow up hearing immigrant stories firsthand And I think that often like when you are born and raised in the U.S. or at least in the 90s when you're born and raised in the U.S. and even now it's like the whole narrative is that everything is better in America. Like everything is bigger and better and more fantastic and easier. And it's the land of opportunity. And in so many ways it is. And Shirley's dad acknowledges that. I mean, he is here. He is working hard. He's excited to have his family there. But I think that sometimes we can get stuck in this mindset where like, anybody who comes to the US is going to be excited about every little thing that they encounter here. And it's like such a privilege. And, and it, it is, I feel very lucky to have been born here. And, and I think that we are not without our flaws, but I also recognize that there are a lot of opportunities that that have been afforded to me. But when I read this book, like you see that people also make a lot of sacrifices to live here. And Shirley's mom's life just got a lot harder in certain ways. Like she has to take on responsibilities that were never part of her reality back in China. And I just think that's an important lesson for all of us to learn and just something for us to be mindful of um, in this ongoing conversation about how we treat people who come here from other countries.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I I just want to add, too, that that's something that stuck out to me reading it now that I know kind of more about my own family's journeys to get to this country, Shirley comes from a very well-to-do family in China. And that kind of sprang out to me as like the whole time I was reading, I was like, they have servants. They have this huge like kind of mansion that they live in all together. And I was really struck by kind of that disconnect between Shirley's class privilege and, and my own family. As my family, they came from Farming communities and and very poor working class communities, and so they were in search of those opportunities that you mentioned in America, in a way that I don't think that Shirley's family necessarily was, you know, which is which is interesting. It was just an interesting disconnect for me.
0: Yeah, some of the reviews that I read of the book talk about how like Shirley kind of has this middle class, white collar, privileged version of the immigrant experience in 1946. And I'm sure there are so many other narratives that need to be uncovered that talk about a similar character who has a very different background at this time. Yeah. So I think that's a good point to make.
1: And those are stories that I would love to read, too. Yeah. If
0: anybody has them or knows of them, please let us know because I also would love to read them. So the next thing that happens is that Shirley has to start school. And we've all read our share of, like, new kid at school stories, and I think there's always room to play with them. And obviously, this is a very different one because not only is Shirley new to the school, she's new to the city but she's new to the country. And as much as I love Shirley's parents, I have to say her mom put a lot of pressure on her in this moment. I actually wanted to read the quote. So they have this meeting with the principal. Shirley is in a class with kids who are older than she is, I believe, because the systems are different in the United States and China. And so she's like a different age than her classmates. Not only does she not speak their language, but she's also like academically way behind. And she's probably tiny compared to her classmates, which would be very stressful. And her mom says to her, the principal has explained that in America, everyone is assigned according to age. 10 years old means fifth grade. And we must observe the American rules, mustn't we? Shirley nodded obediently, but she could not help thinking that only Shirley had to go to school and only Shirley would be in trouble if she failed. And I thought this was such like a mature observation on her part that like, cool, cool mom, like thanks for following the rules. But just so you know, I'm the only one who actually has to deal with this. And then her mom goes on to say, remember my daughter, you may be the only Chinese these Americans will ever meet. Do your best, be extra good. Upon your shoulders rests the reputation of all Chinese. You are China's little ambassador. I am feeling sweaty and overwhelmed just thinking about this.
1: That is, I made a note to myself about that passage as well, because it's just, it's so much pressure for this poor little kid. But also I think it's a pressure that so many people from marginalized communities feel, even to this day, especially maybe to this day, if you're kind of the only one, then you feel like you have to represent and I feel like that goes for like us walking around in life, you know, at school, at a job, or the books we write, you know, if, if you're kind of the only one writing this thing, you feel so much of the responsibility of like representing well. But like how can one person represent so many people well or represent, you know, any any huge group of people? It's just it's impossible. It's an impossible pressure. And I get it. I mean, I get that I understand her mom in that moment, but also poor Shirley. And I do love how later on in that chapter, Shirley kind of calls it out. And this is something that I didn't notice, but she's let me find that quote. The job of ambassador is harder than I thought, where she is like, I, I feel this pressure, but it is too much. I mean, it's too much to me is is I think what she's saying in that moment. And it just I, I love to see kind of that that pressure that so many of us feel and then also a little pushback on it. I, I really like that complication.
0: Yeah, I agree. Because I I like that she kind of gamely took it on at first. She was like, okay, great. I mean, I'm sitting here as an adult being like, I don't think I could handle this. And she as a 10 year old feels ready. And I appreciate that about her so much. And I agree that like to see her understand within the course of a few pages that like this might be a little bit more than this is like above her pay grade. This is like (laughs) a little bit more than she can handle is refreshing to see because I don't love to read books for kids where a kid is perfect and can do it all and has everything figured out. And Shirley is continuing to figure things out in this transition to her new school. Yeah. So I agree with you. The other thing that struck me, well, there are so many things. I feel like I keep saying the things that strike me. So I love that she gets to the school and it's not exactly what she expected. I love that, that there's some acknowledgement of the diversity in this new community that she's landed in. I think like you said, Tracy, like while there is some bullying and some racism, she has landed in a place that's full of people that don't look alike. And I think that that does make it feel a little friendlier to the reader, which hopefully is like a good introduction to the immigrant experience for kids. I also could not get over how few resources Shirley had to integrate into her new school. And I think so much of this is, of course, a symptom of the times in 1946. Like, there was not like a whole department at the school dedicated to integrating children who don't necessarily speak English into a community to help them with their language skills to make sure that they're in the right classes and set up for success. They literally put Shirley in her class And then walk away like she's just there now. Here you are learning with your American classmates. It was wild to me.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I was looking up some interviews with the author Betty Lord, and she was talking about how it was similar. She didn't have, you know, the support at school. And she also didn't have a a Chinese-American community around her to kind of bolster her and help her integrate into her new life. And she described it as like a sink or swim. (laughs) (laughs) and Mm, that's how it felt yeah yeah and she she talked about how that made her strong and and I think there's that aspect of it which is certainly it certainly comes through for a character like like Shirley Temple Wong but also some people need that support and I and I think that's a support that we should be offering yeah it made me appreciate so much more like
0: Like, I remember in my elementary school, the kids in my class who went and did their English as a second language portion of the day. And I'm sure that those resources are are even better in a lot of communities now. I'm sure a lot of these marginalized communities are still, unfortunately, underserved as well. But I just think that not that long ago, students like Shirley were just, like, thrown into these new experiences without any help. It just kind of blew my mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it isn't presented as a failing of the system in the book, but I think reading it now, we can see that it is a failing of the system. I
0: agree. I think that the author approaches pretty much everything in this book without judgment, which I think is really interesting. Like there is no, there's no edge to Shirley's observations of the way that the school is functioning around her. Um, she's just kind of absorbing what's around her and taking it in and making the best of it that she can. And she does that. I mean, I'm sure that people who have lived this would say that they were forced to learn English really fast and, and they were completely immersed in it. And it seems like that's what happens with Shirley. But the social stuff is really hard. Like fitting in with these other kids is so hard. The fact that she follows a bunch of cool kids out at lunch on her first day just because she like wants to be accepted but she's not quite sure if that's allowed. It's just it broke my heart for her because you you know that she was this really outgoing kid in China. She had all of these friends who were also her cousins. I feel like she was probably a ringleader to some extent. Yeah. Like people followed her in China and now she's just kind of like along for the ride trying to see what's cool to do at lunchtime.
1: Yeah, it was that chapter A Hungry Ghost was heartbreaking for yeah. me because I mean we see her shrink and like it is a relatively gentle introduction to her her classmates but kind of their their disregard for her makes her recede into the background right and and start to become invisible in a way that she wasn't before my heart just just went out to her this poor kid we're jumping ahead a little bit but i also thought that this moment
0: was interesting once she settled into school a little bit she spots a new student who looks like her and she's all excited because she's like, okay, I kind of figured this place out. I have some friends. It's not as hard as it used to be, but like here's somebody who I can really connect with. And now I get to be the one to show her around. And so she approaches her in the lunch line and I believe she speaks to her in Chinese and the girl does not know how to speak Chinese. Yeah. And she's I forget where she was from, but she she explains to Shirley that, no, she's like moved from another part of the U.S. Like she's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm just I'm just here. And sensing Shirley's disappointment. Oh, it made me so sad because she was so excited.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I found the section. The, the other girl is from Chattanooga. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, she just she's so isolated. And I feel like that's. It's a moment that I really appreciate now that I'm an adult to talk about kind of the the differences like between kids who were born here, Chinese Americans who were born here and Chinese Americans who immigrated here. And just to see already, like within one generation, kind of that that cultural difference was really, I think, a nice moment to see in here because it shows that we're not a monolith again. Right. Like. We're not all going to have the same experience. And so even though we don't see a lot of other Chinese Americans, this moment does leap out to me. It's like, we're not all the same. Mm-hmm. I actually would
0: have loved to read more about maybe an unfolding relationship or not with this girl. Like I was mm-hmm. kind of curious how they would continue to move in the same space over the course of the school year. But she does move quite a bit in the same space with Mabel. And we have to talk about Mabel. Yes. So Mabel is definitely a kid that you do not want to make enemies with. Uh, She is the person that you probably want to have on your side, because if she is on your side, she will fight hard for you. But, like, also, do you really want her on your side? Because I don't know that she would be that fun to have as a friend. But Mabel, at first, gets really angry at Shirley, because Shirley walks in the middle of her stickball game, and we learn pretty quickly that stickball is, like, everything to these kids in Brooklyn. And Mabel unleashes like a whole spew of racial slurs. She insults not only Shirley, but like everybody else who is playing stickball. She seems to have a name for everyone, and it's gross. We also see a lot of asterisks. So she also like seems to know a lot of English curse words, which I thought was funny. And I'm sure when I was a kid, I was like, ooh, I wonder what that means. (laughs) And Shirley is rightfully like terrified and embarrassed. And I felt so much secondhand embarrassment for her, like walking through a game and not knowing how to get out and just feeling like you're ruining something for all these kids who you're trying to be friends with, like devastating. And then Mabel punches her in the face, in the (laughs) eye. It's so aggressive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mabel's one of those characters that I remembered. And so I was like, I don't know how I'm going to feel about Mabel now. Like I just kind of glossed over the fact that she is characterized right up front as an angry black girl, Mm -hmm. right? Very aggressive, kind of very imposing. And I was really leery about going into that interaction. And I still – wonder at that characterization. I don't know if that's a characterization that we should be encouraging these days, right, in the 21st century. But also I think about the unfortunate, and I think this is a failure of the system again, right, kind of the unfortunate circumstance of these marginalized communities having to live close to each other and both being kind of in these poor socioeconomic circumstances. Right? This is post-war years, but you know, racism against black people is a huge thing, and racism against Chinese immigrants is a huge thing. and they're having to living they're having to live in these close quarters. That forces them kind of into conflict with one another, just kind of because of the very nature of the institutions that make them live like this. And so I, I fully understand that this could have been and likely was an experience that many Chinese Americans had at the time. But also, I don't think that, I mean, I, I would love for that to be kind of complicated a bit more mm. now, you know, right. by by the knowledge that it, that it was these institutions and it, and it was these kind of greater social problems without kind of demonizing one or the other community.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I think if this book were written today, I wonder if There would have been a conversation between Shirley and Mabel in which Mabel reveals that she has been on the receiving end of racism as well. And so we see more of her humanity. And so it it complicates it and adds some nuance and maybe would give Shirley some empathy for Mabel. I mean, ultimately they become friends anyway, but I think if the book were written now, we would have gotten more of a glimpse of that. It's interesting as you were describing that I I recently saw the remake of West Side Story and it's obviously not exactly the same thing, but I think, you know, that story portrays something similar in that you have marginalized groups of people who are forced to live in, in close proximity to each other and everybody's angry and frustrated and everybody feels like their opportunities are limited. And there's only so many places that that anger can go. And in West Side Story, of course we see that in like, you know, gang violence disguised as dancing. Um, Whereas (laughs) in this book, we see it as Mabel calling kids mean names and punching them, but they do ultimately become friends as kids do because Mabel's just upset, but she is a nice kid, I think at the end of the day. And like, she wants to protect people like her who haven't always had good opportunities.
1: Yeah, I did love because I remembered them being enemies for much longer. Yeah. But it's but it's within a few pages yeah. that they become really fast friends. And I and I and I did appreciate that. So even though she's introduced in a certain way, we do see her share her life with, with Shirley and her, her love of baseball. Like she's kind of Shirley's main introduction into that. Yeah, so let's talk about the baseball, especially
0: now that I know that you had this passion for baseball, however brief, as a result of this book. So again, it's 1946. Baseball is like the thing. And Jackie Robinson is also the thing. And Shirley finds out that she is like kind of good at baseball. And people start calling her Jackie Robinson because they say that she's pigeon-toed, just like Jackie Robinson. And so she, of course latches onto that and wants to learn everything she can about baseball and about Jackie Robinson, and he becomes her idol. And there's this beautiful section of the book where Shirley's teacher is talking to the kids about baseball as an American pastime and about Jackie Robinson. And I'm going to read part of that, or maybe all of it, which might take a few minutes, but I just think it's really good. And I, I think we should get into this a little bit. So Shirley's teacher is kind of trying to turn this into a lesson about America. And she says in our national pastime, each player is a member of a team, but when he comes to bat, he stands alone. One man, many opportunities for no matter how far behind, how late in the game, he by himself can make a difference. He can change what has been, he can make it a new ball game. In the life of our nation, each man is a citizen of the United States, but he has the right to pursue his own happiness for no matter what his race, religion or creed, be he pauper or president, he has the right to speak his mind to live as he wishes within the law, to elect our officials and stand for office, to excel, to make a difference, to change what has been, to make a better America. And so can you and so must you. And then she goes on to speak about Jackie Robinson. She says, this year, Jackie Robinson is at bat. He stands for himself, for Americans of every hue, for an America that honors fair play. Jackie Robinson is the grandson of a slave, the son of a sharecropper raised in poverty by a lone mother who took in ironing and washing but a woman determined to achieve a better life for her son, and she did. For despite hostility and injustice, Jackie Robinson went to college, excelled in all sports, served his country in war, and now Jackie Robinson is at bat in the big leagues. Jackie Robinson is making a difference. Jackie Robinson has changed what has been, and Jackie Robinson is making a better America. And so can you, and so must you. Suddenly, Shirley understood why her father had brought her 10,000 miles to live among strangers. Here, she did not have to wait for gray hairs to be considered wise. Here, she could speak up, question even the conduct of the president. Here, Shirley Temple Wong was somebody. She felt as if she had the power of 10 tigers, as if she had grown as tall as the Statue of Liberty.
1: This is such a beautiful idea. Yeah, And this is this is something that I was thinking about where it's. Kind of this this vision of the United States as this place of equality and individualism and merit where just, you know, by hard work, you can you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I love and I think this this book probably influenced that, right? Like, I love this idea of the American dream as something that's achievable for everybody. I wonder If, you know, at the time this was published in 1984, that rang true in a way that it might not anymore, right? I still want to believe that this country can be that kind of place, can really be a place of equality and and merit. I don't, right? I feel like it's a little bit more complicated now. And I I imagine too, for young people, for kids who are reading this, you know, seven, eight years old, I, I imagine that they have a more critical awareness than I did reading this in the nineties or in the eighties when this was published, right. Of like, this is a beautiful idea. This is something worth fighting for. It is a little idealized, right? It is maybe not what actually matches up with the experiences of many kids in this country. And so I have such nostalgia for this section, but I feel, I feel a little bit of tension with it. Reading it now in 2022, I just, I just don't know. If our vision of America can be this simple anymore, or should be this simple anymore. I agree with you
0: 100%. I had a similar feeling as I read this. I was like, wow, this sounds great. And like, this is the way I learned it in the 90s as a white girl in a middle class community. Yeah, I mean, this was what I learned about. This was the experience I had standing up for the Pledge of Allegiance every day. Like this is it, this is the whole thing. And I think patriotism has become more complicated in recent years. And none of this is to say that like, I don't think I would call myself unpatriotic or patriotic. Like I just don't think it's that simple anymore. And I think for good reason, so many of us are looking at a more critical lens at the way that our country treats people in general. And also more specifically, people who don't necessarily look like the people that appeared on like the presidential posters when we were growing up. Like we all remember that when we were kids looking up at that big shiny poster, that was all white dudes um, with white hair. And so I think now it's clear that for the most part, people who don't look like that are not treated the same and, and aren't necessarily definitely aren't given the same privileges that Shirley's teacher talks about in this, very idealistic passage. I mean, this whole thing about like, no matter your race, no matter your religion, no matter your creed, like, I, I think that that's the case sometimes, but certainly not all the time. And so um certainly not here to speak in absolutes, but it is a more complicated conversation now. And I wonder how that would play to kids in
1: 2022. I know, I know. I mean, it's just it's so beautiful and it's so stirring. I love that refrain of like, and so can you right. and so must you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, so must I. And at the same time, but is that is that a promise that's made to me as an Asian American woman, right? Or is that a promise that's made to someone else from a different marginalized community? I don't think so. And and I don't know how kids today would react to it because it is it is more complicated and I don't know that patriotism these days can or should be unquestioning the way it seems to be presented here. I do think the, and so can you, and
0: so must you is very Gen Z. (laughs) It's very like, yes, we will take to Instagram and we will like create movements. And I I think it's exciting to see what Gen Z is creating Mm -hmm. socially. I think there there are a lot of really interesting things brewing, but I also think that a lot of kids would be like, yeah, no. That's not that's not how my parents are talking about it. That's not how I'm experiencing it. That's not what I'm seeing on the news or on social media. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting passage to reflect on and to have conversation about. And Jackie Robinson, I think, like, I'm sure at this time was a sign of hope for a lot of people. And um, and luckily, we still have people in our world who are representing a similar path to the American dream. But, like, like we're saying, I just don't know that it's that easy to look at like one person and be like, Yes, I can do it in the way that Shirley does. Like, Shirley genuinely looks at Jackie Robinson in this book and is like, I'm going to be fine here. Like, I'm going to thrive.
1: Yeah. And I'm, this is something I'm going to try and articulate this, but this is something I was thinking about as I was reading, where I wish reading it now as a grown up that there had been a little bit more about the racism that Jackie Robinson faced. Yeah. Being the first black player in the major leagues. Like I wish there'd been a little bit more of that. I think kind of reading more about Jackie Robinson and baseball when I was a kid gave me like this heightened sense of awareness that as I was reading it now, I was like, where's the racism? Right. <laughs> where's, where's the acknowledgement that he's going through some really, really violent and difficult things that either surely doesn't know about or doesn't want to acknowledge, you know, And, and I and I wish that there's just been a bit more of kind of the hardships that he faced, not just like, oh, he's the first one to do it. Hooray. But like he he faced some really tough things on and off of the field. Death threats, you know, he was spiked multiple times. As a kid, I knew it. But I didn't see it reading it as an adult, which is really which is a really strange kind of thing.
0: Yeah, on the page, it's like, oh, he just waltzed onto the field and like everybody celebrated him and that's not how it actually happened. So I think that's a good point. I want to make sure we take some time to circle back to what you mentioned at the beginning, Tracy, which was this question of identity and how Shirley ultimately discovers that she can be both. Um, and there are sort of little hints throughout the book of the way she feels as though she might be losing some of her Chinese identity. She talks about the fact that she's not speaking Chinese at home as much and her mom corrects her. She has forgotten how to write certain characters. And she is like throwing herself so much into this community that's become more welcoming to her in New York that she is forgetting about her cousin. She owes them letters. And it seems to me that like, the announcement that her parents are expecting a baby is the thing that really clicks for her that like, it's important for her to carry a legacy for, and she, I don't think we know that it's going to be a brother, but she's decided that she's having a brother. She realizes that like, it's her responsibility to be for this new sibling, the archivist for life in China, because this new sibling won't have experienced life in the first chapter that Shirley had. And I thought that that was really special, but I want to just kind of like hand it over to you and like, let's talk more about that identity question and and maybe how Shirley processes it throughout this book.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that really stood out to me this time was she tells this folktale about a lady like this woman back in China who, you know, had one kind of Future laid out for her, and that was the future she was supposed to take. She was gonna take, and then decides to run away with this other poor farmer or fisherman. Yeah, you know this poor man, and yeah. she goes and has a life with him. But they feel so bad because she disobeyed her parents. They come back, ask for forgiveness, and the parents are like, "What do you mean our daughter did live the life that we thought she was gonna live? She did have this future. I don't know what you're talking about." And then we see kind of this this vision of the two versions of the woman kind of merging into one. And I was like, that is a very powerful idea, right? Like that your two senses of self or your two paths aren't opposed, Like you can hold them both. You can be both at the same time and have no contradiction between them. And so for me, that was, again, like even now I get chills thinking about about this idea that yes, you can be both, and you get to choose how you want to be both. And I think that Shirley kind of exemplifies that throughout the book. At the same time, as I was reading it now, I felt more keenly the sense of losing her language and and losing her connection to her family back in China and kind of losing these traditions. Like there's one point where they forget about this festival and they're like, oh no, yeah. this is such a big deal. And yeah. we didn't even do it. We we're so busy with our American lives. And I felt that loss so much more keenly now. I think now that I have kind of more of an awareness of what I myself have lost being third generation Chinese American, like the, the traditions that we've let go of the language that I, I like that girl from Chattanooga don't know how to speak. Right. And so I feel that so much more now as an adult than I did as a child. And so I think, yeah, yeah, I, I feel kind of these two ways of like, yes, I can be both. But also, I feel this ache now of, of missing kind of these, these traditions that can kind of just kind of slipped away over the years. Yeah, I would love to get a book about Shirley in
0: like the 60s when she's in her late 20s, early 30s. Like, how is she navigating it at that time? And is baseball still playing a huge role in her life? (laughs) And like, I think that it was smart in this book for the author to use baseball as like the thing that was the bridge Shirley needed to feel more comfortable in her new home. But it obviously gets more complex than that over time. Like you can't be an adult and have baseball be like the only thing. And you also, as you said, like I I would imagine that as you get older, you kind of miss the things that you let go of a little bit more. So it would be interesting to know kind of where Shirley lands with some of these questions.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think I'd imagine that she would keep that spunk, you know, that we see. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, but I do think that, you know, as we get into the Cold War, you know, in the Red Scare in the 50s, like, I imagine that's going to continually reshape her as well. Yeah. Uh, she's an interesting character. I wish we'd gotten
0: a little bit more of her. But Tracy, on the whole, I'm curious how this rereading experience kind of holds up to your memory of this book from when you were a kid.
1: I think rereading it now reminds me of what. What a gift and what a treasure it was to have this book when I was Shirley's age, you know, when I was growing up in San Francisco as a Chinese American and and being really secure. I felt so secure in my identity as a Chinese and Japanese American, knowing that these identities were discreet, but also whole in me. You know, and I feel like this book and the others that I was reading at the time really cemented that for me in a way that I think sustained me throughout my teen years and my, my young adult years where I started to feel that pressure of like, are you Chinese enough? Are you American enough? Are you Japanese enough? But having kind of this core, this foundation, I think really, really helped me. Reading it now, I think about how much more complex my perception of the world has been, has has gotten since I was that age. And also I think how much more complex our collective ideas about America have gotten and how some things we want to cling to, right? This idealized version of America. But should we be clinging to them, right? Should we allow those ideas to evolve? I think so. And that's kind of where I've landed. I think this book is so essential. And I could see kids today reading it and getting a lot out of it. But I would also want to give them kind of other viewpoints and kind of other, other perspectives that complicate kind of this vision of America as this place of equality, which we know it, it aspires to be for many of us, like we aspire to be. But we're not there yet. And I would want to see kind of more of those perspectives today.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there's a larger conversation to be had around this book today, but I, do, I hope that kids are still reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk about it. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing your experiences with the book and your insights about the story. Other than in the year of the Bora and Jackie Robinson, Tracy, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: I would love to recommend two historicals that I've read recently. They're both YA. First, I would recommend The Red Palace by June hur It's set in Korea in the 1700s, I think. It's <laughs> <laughs> set hundreds of years ago in Korea. And it's about this nurse at the royal palace who kind of stumbles into a series of grisly murders and Decides that she's going to try and solve them to absolve her mentor of of guilt um, for these crimes. And it's just it's such a mystery. And it's so interesting to see her like trying to uncover these clues and this palace intrigue. It's it was I blew through it in one sitting. It was so good. And then the other one I read recently is Luck of the Titanic by Stacey Lee, which is about a British Chinese girl who sneaks aboard the Titanic so that she can reunite with her long lost brother, who is kind of working in working on steamships at the time as a coal shoveler, and she wants to convince him to go to America with her. But they're on the Titanic, and so complications ensue. But I really, I'm such a huge fan of all of Stacy Lee's books, and and this one is is no exception. I almost blew through it in one sitting, but it was it was long, and I was tired. <laughs> So it took me two sittings to get through. It was so good. Well, and then you savor it a little bit more too. You get some more time with it. Well, I will include links to both of
0: those books in the show notes for this episode. And Tracy, the day this episode drops, March 1st, you have a new book out, A Thousand Steps In Tonight. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Congratulations on the release.
1: Ah, thank you. Yeah, A Thousand Steps In Tonight is my return to YA fantasy after taking a detour into historical for a while. It is a Japanese-influenced feminist folktale about a very ordinary girl who is out and about running errands for her father one day when she is cursed to become a demon. She is then cast out from her village and decides that she's going to remove this curse and she's going to restore her humanity. But on the way, she kind of comes into her own. She finds that, oh, maybe being a monster isn't so bad. Maybe kind of the freedoms and the powers that I get are are worth something and, and make me realize my own worth. And I don't know if I want to go back to this ordinary life anymore.
0: Ooh, that sounds really cool. Big questions, good questions, and definitely juicy territory to explore in a YA fantasy. Well, congratulations again. I'm so excited that that's out there. I will include links to your new book as well as all of your books in the show notes for this episode as well. Tracy, it was so much fun chatting with you today. Thank you for taking the time. Allie, this was awesome. This was so much fun. Thank you. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast